There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the 90s and 2000s. I'm one of your hosts, Emily Beijing. And I'm your other host, Margo Poupard. Today on this podcast is a special day. For us, this is truly our Super Bowl. <laughs> if you grew up in the late 80s to the early 2000s, you probably watched at least one movie penned by our wonderful guest today, Stu Krieger. Stu has written countless movies. Many of them are Disney Channel original movies, Xenon Girl of the 21st Century, which I would consider the Citizen Kane of Disney Channel original movies, uh, Smart House, all of the Xenon sequels, um, The Poof Point, True Confessions, Gotta Kick It Up, um, and of course, penned such classics such as The Land Before Time, Monkey Trouble, A Troll in Central Park, In the Army Now, truly someone of um, who just really impacted our childhood and adolescence. Um, he has recently come out with a brand new book titled Raft, and we are so happy to have him join us today. So welcome, Stu. Thank you for joining us. It is absolutely my pleasure to be here. What a, what an absolute joy and delight, like a highlight of the show to have you on as we have talked around you and like tangentially about your movies and just I, Emily and I were just talking about like the easiest way to intro you is like he's probably written a majority of your childhood. So <laughs> it is such an honor to have you on. We're so thrilled. Thank you. Of course. So what we'll get into is just a few questions we have for you. And of course, um, one of the ones that we always like to get into um, is just telling us a little bit how you came into working as a screenwriter and how this um, became your career and calling. Yeah, I was a little bit of a weirdo in terms of I knew from a very early age that that was what I wanted to do. And I was a kid who grew up in Rochester, New York, with absolutely no connection to the business. So, you know, where that inspiration from came from, where that cockiness came from, I have no idea. Um, but my family made a pilgrimage to California when I was 12 years old. We were in Los Angeles for two weeks. We got to do some incredible things, including a tour of the Disney backlot at a time when that was not a thing, but a friend of my father's got us in. 
And at the end of the two weeks, I said to my family, so this place exists and you people are going back to Rochester, New York. And they said, yeah, we are. And I said, well, just so you know, as soon as I'm old enough to make my own decisions, this is where I belong. And I went to school in upstate New York. I graduated and moved to L.A. On Halloween, I will have been here 50 years. Wow. (laughs) A true uh, Los Angeles native at this point. Exactly. So you obviously wrote a lot of Disney Channel original movies and TV movies for about three decades, back even before they were called Disney Channel original movies or DCOMs. How did you get involved with Disney besides obviously that first tour on the lot? Yeah, I am somebody that kind of believes a little bit in destiny. So I was a kid who grew up completely on the Disney movies of my era. So the original Parent Trap, Absolutely Professor, Pollyanna, Swiss Family Robinson, those were my childhood movies. And I was a Disney kid. I had Disney characters that I collected. I had all kinds of stuff. And I used to, before I knew I was going to be a writer, when I was even littler, first and second grade, I used to take pictures out of the family album and send them in an envelope. And back in the day, I had flaming red hair, and I would address the envelope, Walt Disney, Hollywood, California, and I would write on the back of the pictures, look at me, I'm a cute redhead, you should put me in your movies. (laughs) Um, The very strange thing is Walt never wrote back. He never did put me in one of his movies. (laughs) But, you know, heading in that direction made total sense to me. And then honestly, in terms of my own film career, it kind of made a turn into almost exclusively family entertainment when I had my own kids. And part of the impetus for that was I was taking my son first, who's four years older than my daughter, to movies. And I was looking at things going, does it have to be this stupid? Does it have to be <laughs> pee-pee and caca jokes? Does it have to be about yeah. idiot dads who, you know, you leave them in charge and all hell breaks loose? And it was sort of like, I think you can do this a little bit smarter, entertaining the parents as well as the kids and not talking down to anybody. And that was really when everything shifted for me of having that mission Um, kind of the entree to land before time was I was working on Spielberg's Amazing Stories at the time, which was his first entry into television. And while I was doing that, his head of development came to me and said, Stephen and George have an idea for an animated dinosaur movie. Uh, We've been talking in-house and we feel like you've become an even better writer since you've become a dad. Would you like to write this movie for them? And now as a professor, one thing I say to my students all the time is, When Steven Spielberg and George Lucas said, you want to write a movie for us? You say, yes. You don't ask a lot of questions. You don't ask how much I'm going to be paid. You don't ask, can you tell me more about it? You say, yes. And then you figure out everything else after that. (laughs) I think you'd be good for it. I don't think you need to worry about where the money's coming from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think, you know, that was kind of the springboard back to Disney. Um, And then, like I said, I had already had a little bit of a relationship with them. As you mentioned, I did the Parent Trap sequel in 1986 before DCOMs existed. And then I did the Freaky Friday version that was Gabby Hoffman and Shelley Long prior to the DCOMs. And then once DCOMs became a thing, I got, we can talk about, because I know the Xenon-centric nature of this, but Xenon was the first one that I did for them. And I could kind of talk a little bit about how that door opened and what happened from there. Yeah, I mean, you you just perfectly set it up for us to segue into <laughs> our segment of Xenon questions. So that is wonderful. It's as if you are a writer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Xenon was originally going to be a TV show. And that's something I found out when I was doing research leading up to this uh, interview. At what point in this uh, development process did the project come your way? You know, when I read the question, it made me laugh because if that's true, I didn't know that part of the equation. So I, I can tell you my path. And then somewhere yeah. between, there, there was a TV series in the mix later, but there wasn't initially. So the first ah. call I got, uh, the producers on the project were Suzanne DePass and Suzanne Coston, uh, commonly referred in the industry as the Suzannes. Um, and they had the rights to the kids' book that Xenon was based on. And so they had made the deal with Disney Channel. DCOMs were a thing that were just, just, just beginning. I had not even really heard about them as a brand until I went into the meeting. And when they did the reach out, they said, we're sending you this book. We're considering, you know, we're looking for a writer to adapt it. And they told me a little bit about the franchise. And I said, is there a movie currently done that I can look at just to get a sense of what this DCOM thing is all about? And the only one at that point was Under Wraps, the mummy movie. Of course, oh, yeah. yeah. So they sent me a rough cut. They said, nobody else has even seen this yet. This is the first cut, but take a look at it. Because one of the things, again, now as a professor that I'm constantly saying to my students is do your homework. When you're going into a meeting, be prepared, do your homework. And so I watched Under Wraps. I read the book, which really is, you know, as thin as thin kid, kid book can possibly be. It's a kid's yeah. picture book primarily. And I went into the meeting and the development executive who worked for the Suzanne said, I'm going to be very honest with you. Uh, you are the 18th or 19th writer we've interviewed on this project. We still haven't found somebody that's right for it. Give us your take on it. And I said, this movie is Eloise at the Plaza on a space station. Uh, and if you <laughs> yeah. know that classic kid's book, yes. mm-hmm. I finished the sentence and they said, you're hired and here's why. <laughs> Because just about every other writer that came in before you said it's Star Trek meets 90210. Disney Channel does not do either of those things. We will yeah. never do either of those things. You understand who we are and what we do. Now pitch us more about you know how you would enlarge the story. But the fact that you came in and said, Eloise at the Plaza on the space station, you're our guy. Um, so after I was hired, we kind of worked on fleshing the story out. And as you mentioned... Kind of the only real elements that hung on was Xenon as a mischievous kid living on the space station with a crush on a rock star named Protozoa. And those were kind of the elements I really hung on to. And then all of the language that has kind of become classic now of all of Xenon's expressions and Cetus Lapidus and everything else was all stuff that I invented. And it was invented by virtue of this is a kid who grew up on a space station and knows technology anything that she's going to have a frame of reference for is coming from one of those two places. So Cetus is a constellation and I have my, you know, galaxy dictionary or whatever map of the stars on my desk. Uh, I spent two days at the jet propulsion lab in Pasadena talking to the scientists there about technology they were working on. And just so, you know, like it's, it's a disaster major it was Ursa major and Ursa minor and Cetus Lapidus was a constellation and everything was either Macro or micro was tech stuff. So all of her slang came out of what would she know? What was her frame of reference? What would she be seeing out the window of the space station? It's so interesting. What struck me the most is of rewatching it as an adult was as a kid, it it just sounded cool, even though I didn't maybe necessarily understand the subtleties of it. But now you see it. I feel like it holds up better as like timeless slang because it's tied to those things. Because I just I, I mean, I. 
after rewatching it, it woke up being like, see, Salidas, today is the day we're going to interview <laughs> Stu. And it just sort of like sticks in your brain, just like the, the Zoom Zoom song is like such an earworm. The, the language <laughs> of the movie really sticks in your brain the same way. And I think it's because it's tied to like some of the bigger tech concepts. So it makes it easy to also feel like, oh, yeah, of course, this would be the way that slang evolves in 2049. Is that the year? What year is Xenon? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're, the ha- we're just about the halfway point next year. Oh, not say yep. that. <laughs> 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 yep. I, I have a follow-up for you, actually. was um, So I know uh, the uh, Supernova Girl was written by the late Christian Rex, but I wanted to know, were you involved in any of that uh, songwriting process? Did you have any sort of input into any of the lyrics? Not that one, uh, but in the sequel, I wrote the lyrics to the second song, The Galaxy is Ours. Oh, what a great song. Uh, So the reason that happened (laughs) uh, was because they had an in-house songwriting team. And so Zoom, Zoom, Zoom just pre-existed in terms of something they commissioned when the script was done. And I only heard it after the fact and was like, yeah, this is so good. It so works. And then with the sequel, which remind me, we'll get back to a little thing about how it became the sequel. (laughs) But with that, they were shooting in New Zealand. And I got a call, and this was back in the days of fax machines before any other you know, advanced technology. And I got a call from the producer on set in New Zealand. And they said, they, you know, studio musicians just delivered a draft of the song. We really don't like it. They really didn't get the spirit of what the movie is. They really don't understand the whole world that we're in. Um, we would love you to take a crack at the lyrics, and then we can get music written to the lyrics you write. There's only one little problem. We're recording day after tomorrow. So... If you can write it tonight, fax it to us, you know, before midnight, then we can get it recorded tomorrow and shoot the sequence the following day. And it was like, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> so That's I a sat tight down and, turnaround. Yeah. I sat down, banged it out, sent it to them. And I said, oh my God, we love this. We just gave it to the musicians. They're stoked. And honestly, I don't think it was 48 hours. I got a track. They said, it wasn't, I'm trying to think how it even was because it wasn't over the internet, but somehow I got a track and there it was, and they recorded it, and that's my only songwriting career uh, credit to date. I was going to ask if you had experience <laughs> prior to that. Not before, not after, but there it is, and I still get ASCAP residuals for it every time the movie airs. Love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so this is actually a great segue into our que- question we had around uh, Xenon and the sequels, or, or the sequels. Um did you always intend for Xenon to have sequels or did you think it was always going to be a standalone movie? Had there been discussions when you talked to the Suzannes about this being a franchise? No. Um, and also what was interesting about it, there was no precedent with the decoms of any sequels. There had not been anything that got spun into a second movie prior to that. Yeah. And if you remember how the movies got rolled out, it was First Friday of every month was a new mm-hmm, decom mm-hmm. for that period of time. And then opening premiere weekend, it played all weekend long. And at the end of the first weekend, Gary Marsh, who was the head of the channel, called me and the Suzannes and said, this thing is going bananas. We're getting you know more views than anything else we've done so far with the decoms. It's through the roof. What about a sequel? And it was like, okay. And they said, you know, come on in and we'll have a meeting and sit down and talk about what it might be. And when they said something, sat down at the conference table with the Suzannes and Gary and a couple other executives at the channel, Michael Healy was the head of movies at the time. 
And we all started talking about it and spitballing. And I said, well, obviously it's the sequel. And then a couple of years later, when the chipmunks came out with their squeakquel, it was like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you may not be ripping me off with your squeakquel. Zequel came first. <laughs> Xenon walked so the chipmunks could run. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, And then similarly, the success of the second movie spawned the third movie. Um, but now enough pe- time has passed that I can give you the full inside scoop of the third one, if you watch that again, is not quite up to s- the same caliber as the first two. Um, and part of it is because it was originally going to be a feature film. Um, ah. They did that with the Lizzie McGuire movie. And I think uh-huh. maybe even Steven, there was one other. I that they- there wasn't even Steven's. Yes. And I think there might have even been a third that we're blanking on. Like yeah. Maybe, yeah, I want to say like Camp Rock, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, so there was a couple that ended up ultimately getting theatrical releases. But what happened with us was it was at a time when the studio had their division of Hollywood Pictures and it was going to be the studio was doing the studio representatives were Hollywood Pictures and then the mm. Disney Channel. And shortest version of the long story is somewhere in the development process, a turf war ensued. And there was this big fight about who was the ultimate arbiter of the buck stops here. Was the, was the channel going to have the final say or was the studio going to have the final say and script decisions, casting decisions, all of that. And eventually the Disney channel said, no, it's our original property. We have to be the final say. And the studio said, no, we have to be in, you know, like happens often in Hollywood, they could not reconcile what was going to happen. And, and Disney channel finally said, we're taking our ball and going home. Um, but because some of the wheels were already in progress, they went off to news. No, that was South Africa was the third one. They went off to South Africa to shoot a feature film on a Disney Channel budget. Um, so when you watch, <laughs> so when you watch the third one, there's some things that look like, you know, they were shot in my backyard and the, there's one sequence where she's on a beach and there's like a windstorm going on and you can't. Yeah. Yes. You know? I was going to say that, yeah. that and some of the CGI around Raven Simone's. I was about to bring that up too. You can yeah. see it kind of like blurring <laughs> around her hair is like really what betrays her from far away. It's okay. But when they like punch in, you're like, Oh, I see it now. Yeah. I, so so that is exactly why it, it was a, okay. Disney <laughs> a feature film shot on a Disney channel budget, but we didn't have sufficient time to rewrite it because of all the other parts of the production train that had left the station. So there it is. I, I have a question for you. So I, I noticed, obviously, that in rewatching these, that obviously Nebula and one and three is played by Raven Simone, but Shadia Simons plays uh, Nebula in the sequel. Did um, did you know going into the production for the second one that it was going to be a different actor cast as uh, Nebula? Yeah, uh, that was when that so Raven was going on simultaneously. Oh, okay. And so we couldn't break her out of that contract on this production schedule we had. So that was always something the Disney Channel. One of the reasons that with True Confessions that I had a really tight turnaround on that script was because there was a really tight window between seasons of even Stevens where Shire was available. And they really wanted him to do the movie. So part of the thing when I was hired was, you know, you've done at that point I had done six or seven movies with them and we're like, we know you can be fast when you need to be. We need you to be because we've got to get it done in time to stay with the production window that we have to get Shire between seasons. And that's what we did. So with Raven, we were unable to work it around her Raven schedule. So somebody else stepped in and then for the third one, that's also why she was green screened as opposed to, she never went down to South Africa. She wasn't on set. She was shot in the studio and then inserted accordingly. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, this is this makes a lot of sense because we we've talked about Cadet Kelly on the show, which cap- happened during uh, peak Lizzie McGuire. So similarly, they had a short turnaround schedule because Hillary Duff had you know obligations, obviously, to film the next season. So I'm glad you provided that context. It's super um, helpful to understanding how the inning in and in, inner workings of Disney Channel <laughs> work. So thank you. Uh- so I can also tell you at which point it was going to be a series and why it wasn't going to be oh, yeah. a series, which was what happened. And honestly, I'm not entirely sure if this happened between the second and third movie or after the third movie. But at some point in that period of time, this is another, like I had said for many years, that the great thing about show business is every time you think they found every possible way to break your heart, they find a new way. And I got a call on a Thursday night from the Suzannes and they said, we have really wonderful news. The studio called and they want to pick this up as a series. Um, You are going to be the head writer and executive producer along with us of the show. Um, I forget how many episode order it was to begin with. And we had pitched a whole concept of Xenon now training the next generation of kids. And we're going to go to the space station. And it was like a space camp kind of thing that she was, you know, one of the people running it. And they were excited about all that. That was on a Thursday night. Friday afternoon, I got a call. You were excited about the series, right? Yeah. Well, never mind. The series isn't happening. Oh, why is that? Uh, After we called you, we called Kirsten. And she said, oh, damn, I just signed a three-year general hospital contract yesterday. Oh, yeah. She's a soap star. I forgot about that. Yes. I'm Uh, only reminded when the daytime Emmys roll around. (laughs) And the thing that was very, very typical Disney Channel was, normally you would have an actor under some kind of a holding deal that we are the first right of refusal that, you know, if you have another job in the offing, you have to come and let us know. Um, and part of their cheapness, that's what it was. It was cheapness. Um, <laughs> they did not have any kind of holding deal with Kirsten and nobody told her that the potential series was in the works and she went off and signed the soap contract. And that was the end of that. No. What could have been. Yep. But you know what? I've had a pretty good life despite that. So (laughs) (laughs) it's super interesting. You bring all this up because, you know, what I'm reminded of is what you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, they had never not only they had they never really done decoms before when you kind of first stepped in, but the original shows at Disney were almost exclusively a brand new thing. They had done like Mickey Mouse Club, but it was mostly bringing in shows from other countries or other, you know, production companies. So as you were working there, um, you were in the midst of the entire company learning how to put in these kind of first rights of refusal. I feel like that's way more evidence with like, for example, Zac Efron continuing in the high school musical franchise later on, despite being a megastar by the time, you know, the second or third film had rolled around. Yep. That's the, that's the live and learn. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Right. So in terms of going back to the changes from the book, so um, it sounds like you, as you mentioned earlier, you really kind of kept a few um, things from the book. Is one, the source material is quite small, um, and two, you you really wanted to take a new approach uh, to how this uh, character was going to be written um, in comparison to what other people had proposed. What were the ch- um, what was the approach around the choices you made when um, creating Xenon the character and also changing um, some of the details in the book from the yeah. little source material you had. Yeah, a lot of it was built around the idea of, you know, to propel a feature film versus a 10-page picture book. It was, what's the central mystery of this? Or what's the, 
you know, mischief that Xenon's going to get into and how is that going to escalate? So the whole idea of, you know, bringing the team up from Earth that could possibly shut down the space station if everybody's not on their best behavior and the whole Lutz and the earring with the code and, the, you know, going to crash the space station, all of that stuff was stuff that I had to invent in order for it to be able to sustain 90 minutes. And one of the things I did, and, and I think it's part of why I stayed employed at the Disney Channel as long as I did, because one of my kind of greatest sources of pride is they held a party, a big, glamorous, you know, party for celebrating the first 50 DCOMs. And when Gary Marsh got up to introduce the evening, he made mention of the fact and 10 of them had been written by one guy. And that was me. And I had written a fifth of the output of their their first 50 movies. So that was a good thing. Um, But but I was going to say part of why I think that all happened and why that relationship sustained the way it did is back to where I started because I was such a Disney kid. Whenever I had to sit down with something like the book for Xenon and now how does this become a 90 minute movie? It was about what were those elements of those original movies that I mentioned earlier with the absent-minded professor and Swiss family Robinson that so captivated me as a kid. And it's always when you distill it down, it's about wish fulfillment and, you know, Swiss family Robinson, how cool it would be to live on an Island with this amazing treehouse riding ostriches and, you know, all of those things when you're a little yeah. kid, like, what would be better than that? And so part of it with Xenon in particularly having a daughter wanting an empowered female character, wanting somebody who was not following the boys into their mischief, but creating her own mischief and then being really smart and ultimately saving the fate of the space station. Those were all things that were really important to me. So it's how do you then build that story and build those elements out of character? So I was always a writer that came from character first. And what would those characters do as opposed to building a situation and cramming them into it? And so it was the more I got to know Xenon, the more I invented that language, the more I thought about that kind of boy energy in a really smart girl, which were things that were all really important to me, the more she kind of told me the story rather than the other way around. Well, Xenon came up around the time that we're getting like a Harriet the Spy as well. And they share a lot of like similar DNA in the sense of getting into like their own sort of good trouble and saving people and being really inquisitive and also never giving up. I was really struck by how many times adults told her no or that she was wrong. She's like, well, you don't know anything and would go around them. And I find that to be really uh, an impressive trait. But one thing I wanted to ask since you're talking about building characters Building a family-friendly villain versus, like, your typical villain that you would get in a movie, how do you approach doing that? Like, in Xenon, you have Lutz and the, I want to say Waystar Royco, but that's just because I have succession brain right now. But um, how do you, he never felt like, he felt like a threat, but to the greater space station, but you never felt like he was going to harm Xenon other than you know, turn her in or paint her out to be the bad guy. How do you go about like creating like a family friendly villain like that that doesn't feel like creepy or like they have they have like a, a menacing presence, but not one where you feel like someone's in imminent danger? Yeah. And and I think it's there's always a slight element of buffoonery. Mm-hmm. So and, and again, it's that's the kid fulfillment part of it, of, of really thinking about they're always pompous. They're always, you know, like full of themselves are always convinced that they're right but they're not mustache twirling evil villains, you know, brandishing a Uzi at the kids, you know, mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> so it, it's really walking that very fine line of 
all, any of villains in family entertainment that I've done. And, you know, it was true of Harvey Keitel's character in Monkey Trouble and all of those things. It, there's always an element of slightly larger than life, slightly cartoony, but not ridiculous. So that they still can have that threat and menace, but they're not the stuff of nightmares. Right. So it is a very fine line to walk. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> As these characters are getting in, um, developed, how much involvement did those actors have in shaping the characters in the movie after you had penned kind of that initial script draft? One of the beautiful things about working for the Disney Channel was because they were on very tight budgets and schedules of everything I did in my career, they're the most tr true to the script. Um, and a lot of that is just because there's not time to mess around. Uh, so Xenon, Phantom of the Megaplex, True Confessions. I could show you the script and 98% of what's on the page is on the screen. So we always did a table read where, you know, that was the first time the whole cast was assembled together and we would sit down in a room and read the script beginning to end. And sometimes where it would get informed for me as the writer is if I was watching an actor struggle to get a line out or tumbling over words or there were certain things that be either became tongue twisters or they were tripping over. I would be making notes while the table reader was going on. And then I would go back to the actor and say, would it be more comfortable if we said it this way? Or, you know, here's an alternate line, try that and see if it comes out of your, you know, trips off your tongue a little bit easier. So we did do that. But in terms of, you know, on a typical TV show with an adult cast, they're rewriting all the time and everybody's part of the pain in the ass of adult actors is, I have a suggestion. Do you mind if I, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of that on Disney Channel movies, just simply because it was the, like I said, the time and the schedules and the budgets were so tight. It's like, yeah, yeah, sit down and be quiet, do your lines, show up in the wardrobe, let's go. So, as a writer, it was a good thing. <laughs> so, as you are, obviously, there's a quick turnaround. Did you get to spend a lot of time on set once you know the movies go into production? Um, obviously, the script isn't changing very much, but do you get to spend a lot of time on those sets? Or did you? Um, I did not, but it was for a couple different reasons. One is there is nothing more uncomfortable than being a writer on set because you are just in the way no matter what you're doing. There's <laughs> always somebody moving a light and moving a cable and you're trying to stay out of the way and you're ducking and you're dodging. And on a couple of movies, it would be, you know what? I'm going to be in the trailer. If you need me, come get me. Um, but usually what I would do on the Disney Channel movies in particular is when they were out of town, I would go on location for the couple of days before production, be there for the table read that I mentioned, be there for the first couple of days of shooting and like, you guys good, everybody kind of got it, everybody got their sea legs and then leave. Uh, so in part, because I hate being on the set, it's really boring and you're in the way. Uh, but also I was always working on two or three projects at a time. So I was like, you know, if you're good, I'm gonna dip and I'm in LA if you need me just, and, and it was not unusual that I would get a call from them saying, you know, we were supposed to shoot in a bowling alley tomorrow and the location just fell out. We've got to move it to a coffee shop. Can you rewrite the scene to accommodate that? So there was often rewrites still going on on production, but I didn't have to physically be there to make that happen. That's, um, that's, that's interesting. Like I, um, that's also very cool though, to know, like, you know, if anything kind of came up, you could quickly be there. As you're kind of saying you're working on multiple projects, are there any, um, decom, scripts that you worked on at one point or another that never kind of saw the light and day? Uh, were you, are there any projects that you worked on for the Disney channel other than the yeah, Xenon show, obviously? Yeah. Yeah. There was a couple that, uh, there was a project in particular with Raven that we, uh, 
she had come to me with an idea that she wanted to do. And it was after she had kind of matured enough that she wanted to have just a cameo in it and write music for it and be involved as an executive producer, but not star in it. And I pitched a couple of things to her. And once she responded to it, we sold it to them very unusually, like in the room. I mean, we went in and did the pitch. And before the pitch was over, they said, yeah, this is something we want to do. Uh, we were in development for about six months and then they decided they didn't want to do it. And neither one of us ever found out exactly why. Um, but then the other thing that happened on both Rip Girls and Now You See It, Now You Don't. Yeah, that's what it was called, I think. <laughs> the Kid Magician movie. Um, I worked on several drafts of both of those, but there's a Writers Guild arbitration process. If you're not the, well, it happens for any movie that has multiple writers on, but if you're not the first writer, you have to have contributed more than 50% to the final draft to get additional credit. And it's very, very subjective in terms of, you know, how do you do that metric of what's 50%, what's not. And now you see it was the only one where the, after the arbitration was finished and I did not get credit, the Disney Channel executive called me and he said, between you and me, dude, you got screwed. You you know, there's a lot of your work in there. You should have gotten credit. And yeah. part of the reason that matters is any future earnings like residuals and all the rest are tied to who's got credit on screen. So Rip Girls and Now You See It were the two that I did a lot of work on, but did not ultimately get on screen credit. But again, I'm good. <laughs> you know, it's pretty good. <laughs> I'm not crying about it. Um. I know you said you didn't like being on set, but what about the production design and like the costuming on Xenon? Did you get to see any like early sketches? Were you uh, like, did you see any of it before they started shooting on it? Or what did you just experience it the way all of us did? No, um, it's very funny because if you see my eyes going to the left, there's a drawing on my wall. That's the first rendering of this, the virtual classroom. Where the oh, teacher wow. Was Oh, yeah. Um, I got stuff like that. They would send me concept drawings and, you know, what do you think about this? How about that? Similarly with some of the costume sketches. And one of the things that I've talked about often when talking about Xenon is one of the things that I really did in terms of figuring out the world that they were in was I think one of the things where science fiction gets it wrong is usually even if it's 50 years in the future like we were, there's these giant leaps and suddenly it's flying cars and people in metallic clothes and you know, all of that. And so what I did as my point of demarcation is I went back 50 years and I was looking at, you know, where were we 50 years ago? Okay. We were still driving cars. Men were wearing suits. Women were wearing dresses. It's not this exponential leap. And so how can I take Xenon in the same direction where we are definitely in a future, but we're not in a future we hardly recognize. And so if you look at the production design, if you look at the clothes, if you look at the fact that everybody was driving Volkswagen Beetles on Earth, you know, all of those things were just thinking about what's the next iteration. And then the other very funny thing is I've done probably 10 or 15 interviews and podcasts with tech people calling and saying, you know, between Xenon and Smart House, dude, you invented the future. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're basically on an iPad to call each other. It's like, I know. I think exactly. Steve Jobs owes you money. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. <laughs> I had I had like three smart house AI questions in a, one of these like interview drafts. Yeah, and and you know this, as you just said, Margo, the Zap Pad was what became an iPad. But again, I don't think I'm a genius. It was simply at one point computers took up a whole room. And then they became desktops. Now they're laptops. There's going to be a fully portable version of it, not that far in the future. And, and I, and again, I, I honestly, truly do not think I'm a genius. It was just sort <laughs> of, you know, looking back to look forward. In a in a true Disney fashion, you just made me like you unlocked a core memory of me going. You remember the ride, the Carousel of Progress, which like does not exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I went to Disney World when I was a kid and went on that ride, and I remember the future segment had an AI that you could speak to to like control your microwave, and they burnt the popcorn or something like that. But this was a predecessor to Siri and Alexa and like every one of the. <laughs> AI bots out there. So it is kind of funny how, you know, Disney and and the writers that make Disney magic happen are not exactly, you know, fortune tellers, but just kind of see what's out there and and have a feeling of how it's going to progress. Yeah. And one of the other things, you know, we wrote the movie, I wrote the movie in 1998. And if you remember in the classroom, there's a reference to President Clinton and then it's yes. President Chelsea Clinton. Chelsea and then Clinton. the next year we got another Bush. And I was like, okay, see, you know, it, it really know. was, it was really striking. I was like, oh my God, Chelsea's in this now. But it was, <laughs> it was oddly prescient. It's like, oh, like a Republican that is widely not liked or like a Clinton. I was like, this is really not that far off uh, from current <laughs> times. But I told Emily like a couple of weeks ago, Smart House is the reason why I say thank you to my Google Home device. So, you know. <laughs> No one can ever <laughs> accuse me of not being on the robot side. Yeah. Good call before it goes bad on you. Exactly. I said thank you. Remember that. Um, as you're working on, uh, you know, we've, we've talked through the production with Xenon. We talked a little bit about the sequel and Z3 and what that looked like behind the scenes. Uh, when you're writing the character of Xenon for these sequels, uh, what were the differences that you wanted to convey with that character and how she had grown up and progressed over the last couple of years? Well, if you watch the full canon of my movies, my children are four years apart and my son is the older of the two. Um, and through each movie, there's a progression of the children get slightly older and then yeah. the relationships get the same. So one of the things I always tell everybody is the room I am in right now is my home office, which is at the front of our house. And the office has double acoustic glass doors, like a recording studio. So whenever I'm in here and the doors are closed, the house goes on and everybody's activities happen and I can't really hear anything. But when the kids were growing up, I would literally open the door for 15 minutes, listen to them and their friends, close the door and start writing again. And so, you know, all the things they were talking about, all the things they were fighting about, I've said this many times in interviews of the scene in Smart House where Katie's jumping on the bed and Ryan Merriman's character goes, oh, my God, annoying spice. Will you stop it? And, you know, that was something my son called my daughter at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, 
there's a reason they tell you right what you know. And so <laughs> with me, one of the things I so admired, Rosie and I read all of the Harry Potter books together from the time she was in second grade till after she had graduated college. And when the final book came out, I said to her, you know, we're both really busy this summer and you got this going on and why don't we just each read it? We can sit down and talk about it. She said, dad, we're finishing what we started Lay out on the bed to start reading. And like I said, she was 19 or 20 years old and we sat there and read the whole thing, cried like babies at the end. Uh, <laughs> but the whole reason I bring it up is I always admired how those characters aged appropriately in terms of with each successive book, there were new challenges. They faced puberty, they faced fears, they you know really grew up. And so with the, the sequels and the sequels and all the rest of it, that was really important to me about not retaining, you know, she's not 12 anymore. Now, what are the new concerns? What are the new challenges? What are the new emotions? You know, what, what are the things she's actually dealing with and grappling with? And how do we incorporate that into the storytelling and acknowledge she's growing up? Yeah, no. Um, in terms of keeping in touch, do you still talk to anybody that you worked with um, behind the scenes or some of the actors from Xenon? Yeah, the very, very hilarious thing is Stuart Pankin, who played Commander Plank in all three movies, yeah. um, has become a very dear friend. But this is why the world is this magical, mystical place. Um, for many years after I had done all three movies, my wife was a greeter at Weight Watchers, the person that signed everybody in and weighed them in and got them set up for their Weight Watchers meeting. And when she first started working for them, it probably would have been in the early 2000s, maybe 2005, somewhere in that range. Um, she was at a meeting and one of her coworkers sat down next to her and she had a name tag on that was Joy Pankin. And my wife said, there's no way you're related to Stuart Pankin, are you? And she said, yeah, it's my husband. And she oh my said, God. well, my Stuart wrote the three Xenon movies. And subsequently, <laughs> the two couples became friends and still are very close friends. But I play poker with Stu. We have dinner as the couples together frequently. Um, I'm having a book party in a couple of weeks for my new book and Stu and Joy will be there. Um, and then Robert Curtis Brown played the dad in the second movie. And he also is part of Penkin's poker group. And so he and I are also friends and see each other. Um, and then one of the beautiful things that happened because I had studiously avoided social media forever and ever. And only last year had to put my toe in that water because my publisher said, the kids who grew up on your movie are the audience for this new book, but we've got to be able to reach them. And when I got on social media, we can talk about that in a few minutes, but when that happened, Taylor Handley, who was the star of Phantom of the Megaplex, reached out to me and said, hey, Stu, I can't believe you're on social media now. And so he and I became friends and one, of, I mean, reacquainted as friends. And then one of the things we did a couple months ago is there's a movie Mason monologue in Phantom of the Megaplex. And Taylor and I do a shared dramatic reading on TikTok and Instagram of movie Mason's monologue together. Aww, <laughs> that's I love also that. heartwarming. <laughs> Yeah. And the crazy thing is, I mean, he was a great kid, and but I knew him when he was 16 and 17 years old. And we stayed in touch for a couple of years after. And a couple of times the families went to Malibu together with Caitlin Wax, who also started in the movie. And then just over the years, lost touch. And he's now been married for 10 years and has a kid of his own. And so it was just a wonderful reunion. And, and he's a great guy. And he's on mayor of Kingstown with Jeremy Renner. So it's still a working actor and a wonderful human being. Aww. Oh, that's so lovely. I love your Did little you... poker group, though, too. That's very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that is very sweet. When you were working on Phantom of the Megaplex, did you get to meet Mickey Rooney? I did not. And it was one of the great regrets of my life because yeah. they shot the movie in Toronto and I was up there for the first two weeks. And actually, Rosie went with me uh, because Hillary's dad was sick and my son was off at summer camp and I had to go for two weeks. So Rosie came with me and it was all kids her age. So she bonded with them and had a ball in between everything that was going on. Um, but he, Mickey Rooney came in later in the shoot and I was back home when that happened. So terribly regret, regretful that I did not get to meet him. But but you got to write words that he spoke and that's pretty special. Absolutely. My final, our final question specifically on the DCOMs before we talk a bit about Raft. Um, what was your favorite Disney Channel original movie to work on? I think it really honestly was Xenon and not only because it struck such a chord and became so successful and spawned the two sequels, but creating that world was so much fun. And then it's one of those things that does not happen often in anybody's career, but the confluence of Kirsten and then Phil who played protozoa was so fabulous. And it just, it really all came together. And one of the things that I now talk to my students about is no matter what you do, no matter how long you do it, there's nothing more thrilling than the first day you walk on a set and it's like, damn, I was sitting alone by myself in my office going type, type, type. And, and now I'm here. And, you know, the, the first Xenon shot in Vancouver, Canada. And when I went up, the Suzannes were already up there and they were like, come on. And they took me into a soundstage and you're walking from room to room. And there's the space station completely constructed. And you're in Xenon's quarters and then you're in the mess hall and then you're in the classroom. And it's like, damn, you know, this was just like pictures in my head. And now I'm walking from room to room and I'm on the freaking space station and it's all here. And then Raven, like I said, Raven and Kirsten were 12 and 13 years old and they're running around with their little, you know, screwy hairdos and their little costumes. <laughs> they were running in and out of the set. And it's just like, look what I've done, man. Like, there's, you know, 150 people here working on this thing that was just me alone in my office a couple months ago. That's cool. Very. I can't imagine the seeing it all kind of come to life for the first time must be extremely satisfying. <laughs> it is a rush. I can't tell. I'm like, I, my, my cheeks are hurting from smiling so much. <laughs> this, it's just like magical for me. I like you, I was an East coast kid. And so moving, I live in the Bay, but like moving to California was just like, you know, it was a dream for me when I was a kid. Cause nothing was exciting for me about where I lived in the East coast. <laughs> I will wait. <laughs> uh, so, so talking a bit about your book, Raft, so you just released this book and you've stated it's partially based on where you were in life, uh, experiencing, you know, what you were experiencing at the time 20 years ago with your personal life and your professional life. And what, what really compelled you to write this book at this point in, in your life, 20 ish years later? Yeah, I'm delighted and frustrated by the fact that I can't stop. You know, at some point um, right now, I am still in my teaching quarter because we're on the quarter system at UC Riverside and we don't finish till mid-June. But the book came out two weeks ago and I'm doing all kinds of publicity for that. At the same time, I'm trying to finish my quarter and read my assignments and teach my class. And tomorrow afternoon, I have an event on campus that the entire campus, including the chancellor, is invited to where I'm doing a reading and a Q&A. And we were in Mexico City for a wedding last weekend and I wake up in the morning of dude, you're old, relax. Like, you know, <laughs> you got nothing left to prove. There's like, you, you've been there, done that, you got the t-shirt, relax. Uh, but I think 
you know, I, I will die writing. It, it is something I get great fulfillment from. Um, I feel like I have stories to share. And so with Raft in particular, what's interesting is, as you mentioned, it was based on a midlife crisis that I was having when I was turning 50 years old and my son was leaving for college and my father-in-law had just passed away. Things in my film career were slowing down because everything you ever heard about the ageist side of the business where you're not the new kid in town anymore, you're not the hot flavor of the month, all that was happening at the same time. And I had this feeling of, is everything going forward going to be about loss now? Is every day going to be, what am I giving up? What am I losing? What am I having to let go of? Because internally, I so don't feel like I'm there, but the universe is kind of telling me I am. And, you know, it was a very normal, very classic midlife crisis. But this idea came to me and I tried to write it as a screenplay. And what I realized partway through the process is one of the reasons it didn't work was because I was in the middle of all these feelings and all these emotions and all these, you know, issues I was trying to sort out. And I just did not have the objectivity or the clarity of what am I bringing to the equation. So in the script, the father character was much more the victim. And it it was everybody else's fault. It was the universe's fault. It wasn't like, what are you doing and how are you going to snap out of it? So I just felt like the emotional through line didn't work. And I got some feedback from a couple of Hollywood places that was also typical Hollywood, which was the conceit. I don't think we've said it yet, but the conceit is, you know, the dad wakes up one day and he's a penguin. And there's no magic. There's no, as I said at the time, it's not the big Zoltar machine. It's not the fairy godmother. Mm -hmm. I pitched it ultimately to the publisher, as I said, some men, when they have a midlife crisis, buy a hot sports car. Some take up mountain biking. Some leave their wives for a younger woman. This guy became a penguin. (laughs) Shit happens. Deal with it. (laughs) So one of the things, you know, that the Hollywood response was they would come back and go, but why is he a penguin? And I would say, because this is how his existential crisis manifests itself. Well, no, no, there has to be a reason. It's like, you know, do you have a friend who got cancer? Yes. Was there a reason? Well, no. Okay. You know, you're making my point for me. As soon as there's a reason, it's not the same story. And this is the story I want to tell. All that frustration and my role and put it aside. About three years ago, I was swimming in the backyard and I, my head came up out of the water. And I went, wait, that idea is a great idea. It's just a book. And the reason it's a book is because it's about perspective. It's about family. It's about everybody's role in these crises you face and how do you deal with them. And so what the book is, each of the four family members take turns narrating various chapters. Uh, But unlike some Rashomon stories, nobody repeats information. It's always moving the narrative forward. But when I outlined it, it was like, who's the right narrator for this piece of the story? Because they've got the perspective I need. And that's how I decided whose chapter it was rather than mom, dad, son, daughter, mom, dad, son, daughter. It's, you know, who's got the eyes on this part of the story I want to tell. And when I did that and developed the four voices of the family who may or may not resemble the members of my own family, I'm just saying, who knows? Uh, Suddenly it came to life and it all made sense and it worked. And the biggest compliment I got was from the publisher when I sent it to them. They said, we laughed on every page and we cried at the end. And I said, okay, I did my job. <laughs> you know, that's what I wanted. We good. And they got involved and it's been a wonderful process bringing it to fruition. How did you, because this is your first book, right? Uh, no, I actually did a historical fiction uh, 
counterfactual fiction novel about four it came out in 2017. Uh, and that was a project that I actually worked on for seven years just because it required a tremendous amount of research. And mm. at the time, th- three of the years in the middle of that time, I was department chair at Riverside and didn't have time to devote to it. And it's one of the reasons why I made the turn to novels when I did was because I actively gave up the side of show business, um, you know, film and television, because the first two years I was at Riverside. I was also the head writer and story editor on a Nickelodeon show called Toot and Puddle. Um, But running the show and teaching, I was working 90 hours a week. And I said, that's not what I wanted. I wanted to teach full time because I'm moving on. Um, But as I mentioned, because I'm a writer who will always write, the books allow me. They're done when they're done. I write when I can write. Most of Raft was written over the last two summers rather than during the school year. Um, So it's just much more family friendly, conducive to the academic life to write books instead of novels. I mean, instead of movies and TV. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I would say that's really interesting. And for I would love to know, um, as you have kind of shifted from writing TV, film, screenplays into writing with books, what have been the biggest changes for you in that writing process? Obviously, you get to schedule, you know, the timing of writing those books around your own schedule, your own professional schedule. But are there any kind of other major shifts for you as you've kind of shifted into writing this newer, this, this medium? Yeah, the biggest thing is, you know, film and television are visual. So it's one of the things I'm always saying to my students, and they, by the time somebody takes a second class with me, they know they're going to hear this which is I will give them a note on a film or television script where I'll say, save it for the novel. And what that means is they will say something about she's sitting at her desk thinking about the fact that she really would love a pepperoni pizza right now. And I will say to the student, act that out for me. And if you can act it in a way where I go, ah, you're thinking about really wanting a pepperoni pizza right now, it can stay in the script. If you can't act that for me, take it out and tell me what I'm seeing on the screen in that moment. And then who's the person that she says, man, I'd love to have a pepperoni pizza right now too, because I can't see inside her brain. And in a novel, I can. So it was kind of, for me, the reverse of taking all that visual writing I had done and dialogue heavy writing. And now how can I go and take advantage of the interior monologue and have passages where characters just thinking about something, or I can take two paragraphs to describe what the air feels like and what the weather is doing and how the clouds are moving and all of those things that in a screenplay say it's a cloudy sky and move on, you know, you're not the director. So it was really taking my brain out of the purely visual and into the, it's okay to spend time interior or through the eyeballs looking out without anybody having to say anything. And that was the biggest learning curve. So to sh- I want to shift a little bit of discussion um, around this book, and it's it's around mostly the topic, which is, of course, centered around a family. Um, so many of your scripts deal with sibling and parent dynamics, so Smart House, The Poof Point, True Confessions, Cowbells, The Parent Trap sequels, Freaky Friday TV adaptation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about the dynamics with your wife and your, your kids, and I'd love to know, you know, one, obviously – those seem to have played a, p- a part in in this book, but were there dynamics between you, your own parents and siblings, reflected in these characters in the movie and in your books? And and if so, how? It can't not be. 
in terms yeah. of, you know, th those are pieces of me, no matter what. And particularly in the first book, because that was a multi-generational story that focused on four different families in four different parts of the world. And so it was a much, much larger cast than Raft is. So in constructing that cast, I really had to go back to some of the things from my own childhood and my own grandparents and, you know, drawing a lot of stuff more for that book. Raft really is very focused on my current nuclear family in terms of wife and two kids, just simply because that was what that journey was all about. And, and it is set at the time when my son was leaving for college and my daughter was full of her own angst and things that were going on and the dynamic between my wife and I. So even with that, it's funny now because I, I, not too many spoilers, but there's certain events in the book where friends who have now started to read it will call me and go, okay, I just have to know, did this really happen? Did that really happen? <laughs> and I will say there's particular incidents that absolutely 100% had happened, but I'm not telling you who it happened to, you know? Sure. So <laughs> even though there's scenes that the son character went through, it doesn't necessarily mean it happened to my son, Gus. It may well have happened to one of his friends, but we're going to leave that sense of mystery you know, out there, but, but all drawn from real life, real experience, real relationships, because that's what I know how to do. Of course. The daughter character in the book, did you take some aspects, obviously it was inspired by your own daughter, but did you take also take aspects of Xenon's personality uh, for this inspiration for that character? No, Margot in particular, when she reads it, will know it's Rosie. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's very funny because with, with that, I have another like friend who just, he's having a baby right now and he and his wife are on a baby moon in Cabo and he sent me a picture of him on the beach reading the book. And, and he said, is it appropriate that I'm totally, Hillary is my wife. And he said, is it totally appropriate that I'm hearing Hillary's voice as I'm reading the Julia chapters? And I said, oh yeah, yeah. go for it, buddy. It'll help you. So if anything, Xenon might have a few rosy qualities, but it, in Raft, Katie is 100% pretty much rosy. <laughs> That's good to know for future reading. Yeah. I'll make sure to text Rosie and be like, did this really happen? Yeah, you can. <laughs> Don't give it up. <laughs> <laughs> She'll crack under pressure for sure. 100%. Uh, <laughs> I think we have time for about two more questions. So um, one of them is completely into, and this is a shameless for me, goes into the Don Bluth territory because you did work on two Don Bluth films. Uh, when you wrote The Land Before Time and A Troll in Central Park, Don Bluth very famously left Disney in the early 80s. And what were the kind of main differences on the tone of working in those Disney Channel ver movies versus the Don Bluth movies, besides animation? Because that's obviously a big component. Sure. Um, I have to say, first and foremost, Don was one of the most incredibly menschy, wonderful, mentor, beautiful human beings I've had the privilege of working with. And similar to what I was saying about Taylor Handley earlier, is I had not talked to Don in probably close to 20 years. And he put out an autobiography last year. I, yeah, I was going to pick it up. Yeah, it's great. And when it came out, there was an article on the LA, in the LA Times. And I had known through a mutual friend that he was teaching in um, Phoenix. And so I looked up where he was and I called the school and I just said, you know, I would love to reconnect with Don. I explained who I was. I said, we hadn't talked in a while and I know how busy he is. And if there's any opportunity to reconnect, I would love to. And the guy said, okay, I'll give him the message. And maybe a week later, my phone rang and it was a number I didn't know. And I picked up and they said, are you available for Don Bluth? He's on the line for you. Um, 
and we had a wonderful half hour catch up and, you know, just reconnection. And the thing that was incredible to me is he's 84 years old now and he sounded exactly like the Don Bluth I worked with on those two movies. And we just had the warmest, most lovely catch up. Um, so wanted to give that, that shout out first and foremost, cause he's a wonderful guy. Uh, and the biggest thing was he really, what was interesting even working, you know, cause uh, Land Before Time was a co-production with his company and Spielberg's company with Amblin. Mm -hmm. And originally they were going to do three movies together and they only ended up doing American Tale and Land Before Time. And part of it was, and, and again, two great human beings, but two alpha human beings who were used to being <laughs> Visions. <in charge. laughs> and so there was some friction during Land Before Time, just in terms of a little bit of turf war and stuff. And then they mutually agreed, you know, maybe we shouldn't do a third movie. And it was very similar to the case with Don at Disney of just, he had, he's an incredible creator. He has incredible vision and ideas and he wanted to do things his way. So it, it wasn't such a dramatic tonal shift. His stuff was a little bit darker than Disney. It was a little bit edgier than Disney, but, but mostly it was just a, he was the kind of personality in the best possible way of, I don't want to have to answer to a whole lot of other people. I want to do it the way I want to do it. And Interestingly enough, when we were in when we were working on Troll in Central Park, his production company had moved to Ireland for tax break reasons. And when they were getting near the final version of the script that they were going to bring the actors in and record, he brought actually my entire family, he brought me and my wife and two kids to Ireland for a couple of weeks. And when we got there, he said, You wouldn't even believe what happened. I think it was just a couple of nights before we got there, but he got a call from Roy Disney, who was in England and was coming over to Ireland and wanted to see Don and can we meet for dinner? And they met and Roy Disney said to him, so are you ready to come home? <laughs> and, and Don was like, oh, no, but, but, but he said, you know, it was this whole kind of like, I, I don't think I'm giving away too much because it's in Don's book as well. But the underlying tone was because if you're not, we'll crush you was sort of like, you know, <laughs> But they were implying that we don't really favor the competition. And if you would like to come home, we will take you. Um, but, but if you need more of that story, read Don's book, because there's greater detail on the follow-up. <laughs> whenever I'm doing this, I'm always like, have I said too much? <laughs> it's all out there. It's all good. It's, it's out there. No, I appreciate this. Thank you for answering my questions. It's truly, I love this. Um, our final question, because first off, this has just been so wonderful. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't, you know, bring up what is going on right now with the WGA strike. And you are, and you have a career that has lasted during a really interesting point in time because during your career, you've witnessed not one, not two, but three writer strikes. And um, for you, as you're witnessing this third one take place at this moment. What are your thoughts and um, and your your feelings about this climate and and the future of what it means to be a writer in film and TV and beyond that? Yeah, I think it absolutely. You know, it's difficult for everybody. I'm sorry it had to come to this, but it's absolutely necessary. And with each of the strikes that you referenced that I lived through, it was always about the next leap of technology. So you know, in the first one, there was no such thing as VHS and DVD, so there was no contract covering that because that technology did not exist when the previous contract was negotiated. And suddenly there's this incredible revenue stream. Um, one other sidebar I can give you is 
animation is not covered by the Writers Guild. So Land Before Time was not a Writers Guild deal. And at one point, and even this was several, several years ago, uh, Spielberg came up to me in an event and he said, you should be really proud of yourself. We've now sold 50 million DVDs and cassettes of Land Before Time. And this was, like I said, at least 15 years ago, and it has continued to sell. Uh, I do not see any of that revenue because it was not a Writers Guild deal. Um, being the perverse, perverted human being I am, at some point <laughs> I went, after that, I went home and did the math of had it been a Writers Guild deal and it was multi-millions of dollars that that would have been worth. Yeah. I will say again, I'm good. I have a very nice life. I'm not complaining. But nonetheless. It, it points to a larger is- problem with like why you need a union, why it's really important yes. to have these negotiations happen when they need yes. to be happening and that it really is not a lack of will on like the writer's part or that they that they're greedy by any means, but it's like everybody else like the executive executives and maybe even like the voice talents get like a kickback. Why are the writers always systematically left out? Um, and we have to like fight, you have to fight for every nickel and dime in any aspect of life. So. Yeah. And, it, and it's one of those things where each time any of these strikes had happened, you would get simultaneously a, a Christmas memo saying, congratulations for all your hard work. Michael Eisner's bonus this year is $30 million. Exactly. You know, and it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. good. But, but how about he took 15 and shared the wealth with the rest of the company, you know? I mean, so once again, we are in this precipice of streaming is not fairly covered. And then the other main big thing that is being fought over right now is the whole idea of AI technology and what that's going to mean when, you know, can you just turn to a chat bot and have it write your script for you and not hire writers at all? So, you know, trying to figure that out, trying to get that worked out. And and I will say, writers have always been the pioneer in all of this. The Directors Guild has only had one strike in their history, and that was a day-long strike. And and the way the contracts are in rotation, where our contract is always up first, and the Actors Union and Directors Guild are perfectly fine to go, okay, you guys fight it out. And then we'll jump in and make a similar deal once you're done. And so that that's kind of just been the history of the industry even way before I was involved. And we're just there once again. Yeah, and it looks like maybe, I mean, SAG is possibly voting to authorize for a strike as well. So we will see yeah. how things and, unfold. And the contract is also up July 1. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. But thank you for sharing that perspective. I thought it would be interesting to hear from a, a career screenwriter like you who had started out and how things have evolved for you, especially in light of all of the information that's coming out during this particular writer's strike. So thanks yeah, for sharing no, I your insight. Because I do think it's a very important fight. And and like you said, the tendency tends to be outside the bubble of, you know, don't they all live in mansions with million dollars coming through the door every day? And it's, most working writers do not. And especially now with the advent of streaming, the other thing that's happened is, you know, they've got eight or 10 episode seasons versus networks that used to be 22 and 26 episode seasons. So you're not making the same living to begin with. And then sometimes you're under contract for a full year waiting for the next season pickup. It's a fight that needs to be fought. Agreed. And we stand with the WGA in their fight. we, We appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, Stu, this has been such a pleasure hearing your stories, getting to talk to you about so much of our own childhood and hearing about your book that I'm very excited to pick up. Before we end for today's episode, um, we'd love for you to plug anything else you're working on, um, if you have any other projects, or if you want people to follow you on your new social media accounts. Yes. So you can find me at Stu Krieger on both TikTok and Instagram. 
Um, so it's just simply that at Stu Krieger, S-T-U-K-R-I-E-G-E-R. Um, and then if you are so inclined and do pick up a copy of Raft, which I think you will enjoy it. Like I said, it's an easy, fun read. Um, made them laugh, made them cry. All good. Uh, the other thing I would very, very much appreciate is an Amazon review because ultimately we are in a world where that's how books get sold and pushed out to the world. And I kind of, with this book, even more than my first one, I really, really, truly believe the audience is there. And now it's just a case of how do we find them? How do they, we make them aware it exists? Um, the first five reviews on Amazon are all five stars and said beautiful, lovely things. So we hope the trend continues, but it takes a village. So any support the audience can offer, I appreciate. Yes, please go out and find Stu's book. And thank you so much for joining us today, like a bucket list moment, I know, for me and Emily, like a yes. honor and a privilege. So thank well, you so much, Stu. We really appreciate it. Everybody, please check out Raft and make sure you follow Stu on all of his socials. And you post a lot of really fun videos and a lot of um, insider tidbits on movies that you've worked on. So if you really enjoyed our conversation with Stu, make sure you follow him on Instagram or TikTok or both. And thank you. I really appreciate the preparation. Great questions. And it was a lot of fun. So thank you very much. <laughs> yes, it was our thank pleasure. You. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you everyone for listening to our podcast. Um, as usual, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen to your podcasts. Uh, we do have a Patreon. Um, and if, so if you're interested in more additional bonus content, uh, we put up additional content once a month. Um, and for now, $5 will get you access to that content. Um, so please head over to patreon.com slash old millennials pod. If you are interested in, um, becoming a subscriber or a patron. Additionally, we are on social media at the old millennials pod and individually you can find us on Twitter. However long that may last. I am at Emily A. Beijing. I'm at Mark. She wrote. And until next time we say bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.